You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 85. My name's David Frizzell. And we are going to talk about the future. I love to daydream about all the magnificent changes to technology that are and will affecting our lives. Concepts like autonomous cars, personal assistance, and any of the myriad things that will become normal in our lifetime. I marvel at the fact that, in all likelihood, my kids will probably never drive a car. Perhaps by the time they come of age, humans will be banned from driving on our roads completely. As I say, I marvel at the changes on the horizon, and I love to ponder the social and political implication of it all. Therefore, I never pass up an opportunity to chat with someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Michael McQueen is an award-winning speaker, business strategist, and trend forecaster. He's a futurist, and recently he joined me and showed tremendous patience as I fired all types of questions at him about the future and what we can expect. It's a wide-ranging conversation. We get technical, social, and even a little political. I hope you enjoy it nearly as much as I did. Michael McQueen, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. Well, as we just discussed before I hit record, Michael, I'm so excited to speak to you. This, the whole idea of thinking about the future and how we'll be living and the technologies that we'll be using and what will be normal to us is one of the most interesting things I think you could ever talk about. So to have you on the show, a futurist, is uh, really exciting for me. So I want to start by talking about, we'll talk about a few things in this conversation. The first thing I I want to go through this list that you've put together of things that will no longer exist in this five to 10 year period coming up. Some of the things on on this list are pretty obvious and you go, yep, I can imagine that, but there are a couple on this list that are are a little bit surprising. So there are things that, that will disappear from our life. That's interesting. And then maybe during that or or at the end of that, we'll talk about that three or four or five things that will be part of our life over the next five to 10 years that we haven't even, even thought about yet or that exist, but we haven't put the various technologies together yet. And, and I want to then delve into the way that will affect us on a day-to-day living basis. Are, are you up for that, Michael? Sounds like a plan. Brilliant. Awesome. Good stuff. All right. Now, so let's go to this list of things that will no longer exist in our world over the next little period of time. Yes, there's probably six things we could talk about, and there's many things that are disappearing or at least fading from the sense of their relevance to our lives. But the first one that's interesting is iTunes. And when I say iTunes, I mean the, the format of being able to purchase and download albums and songs. And it's interesting, Apple in many ways have, have been a great example of a business that's done that whole disrupt yourself before you get disrupted, that mantra we hear. Yeah. When they've done that many times. I mean, even you think about the release of the iPhone and how that actually made the iPod 
somewhat redundant or obsolete. And so they've done a good job of that over the years and they've done it again. And what they've done, of course, with Apple Music is remove the need for any of us to actually purchase songs or albums. And so if you look at the data right now, you've got 38 million paying subscribers um, to Apple Music, which means there's a lot of people who are, <clears throat> who are no longer downloading songs or albums. And their plan is, here we sit in sort of mid-2018, their plan is by about this time next year, so 2019, mid-2019, to have actually wound back the purchasing part of their site for um, iTunes. So that in itself is a really significant move because it is cannibalizing a big part of their business, but it is a business that you know, in many ways is no longer serving a purpose. And what's interesting about Apple, in fact, in this regard is they took a little while to get there. I mean, it was interesting. They sort of got stuck in a mindset, which was we had to own music, even though they disrupted the whole music industry they still got stuck in that rut of thinking, no, you still need to own the music you listen to. Even when Pandora and Spotify came online, it took Apple a little while to really catch up the streaming craze. And so it really did. That's a lesson for most of us. And in this example here, they're doing a good job of getting back into that, that mode of saying, hey, let's disrupt ourselves before the marketplace shifts. Um, and they realize that, of course, streaming is where it's at. It speaks to one of the themes in your book, doesn't it, mate, that the intoxicating effect of success. And you say it took iTunes a little bit of time to respond to what Spotify had done. From my point of view, as an arm's length music guy, I'm not much of a music guy. It seemed as though they jumped on it pretty quickly and responded quickly, especially for an organization that was making billions out of selling music. And you talk in your book about when you're successful, it's really easy to be lethargic. But you also make the point in your book, as do Facebook, that if we don't disrupt ourselves, someone else will do it for us. So yeah. that's what iTunes have done. It's clever. It's amazing to think that iTunes won't exist because old old uh, Luddites like me, well, that's not quite true, but I'm not a music guy. It took me ages to even get onto iTunes. And then before, as I was just getting used to this idea of buying stuff online, all of a sudden Apple Music comes out and I have every song that's ever been recorded on my phone and I'll, I'm facing the prospect of never buying another song again. It's, it's such a huge change for the consumer. Well, it is. And you think about it, the implication of success is massive. And that's not just for big businesses with massive budgets. This is for all of us. You know, that, that old saying, and I think it's so true, the moment you think you've made it, you've passed it. Once you get to that point in business where you think, you know what, we're on the winning formula. This, this is the way things ought to be and we're the dominant player. Once you get to that point in the complacency and sometimes, if we're honest, the arrogance begins to creep in, that's the danger zone. And so for Apple and for so many businesses, that has been one of the key dangers. In fact, you look at the research as to what are the, the key indicators or leading signs that you may be in a dangerous or vulnerable position. If you are incredibly wealthy, as in you've got a, a big watch chest of cash behind you, yeah, that's dangerous because when you're in startup mode, of course, you pivot quickly. When you've got a war chest of cash behind you, you can keep throwing money and resources and bodies at things that aren't working and just persist well beyond when you should have, whereas a more agile, smaller player would have pivoted more quickly. So funnily enough, for many organizations, success is a huge trap. And I think Apple have rode that relatively well. They've had a few slip-ups over the years, and I think that transition into Apple Music was one of those. They probably delayed too long. But as a general rule, they've been pretty good at, I guess, burning the platform, setting it alight themselves rather than waiting for the market to give them the cues to do so. Yeah, well, that's that, and you know, hats off to them because it could have been easy, as we've said, to to grow lethargic and enjoy their own success. All right, so iTunes number one on the list. That is something. When when do you reckon that's going to disappear? By just by the way, for the record, Michael, we'll write this down. Yeah, 
Industry estimates are probably in the first or second quarter calendar year of 2019. So probably looking somewhere between March and July um, 2019, they'll see that shut down. Hey, so what happens to you? Because there was this question a few years ago before Spotify and Apple Music came along, the whole question of you'll never own your music and we'll have people leaving their their iTunes password in their will because that's you know that's sort of the only way they own stuff. What happens to us then who have bought music on iTunes? Does that money just get gobbled up and, and I'm gone and I, I'm just listening on Spotify or Apple Music? So you've retained the ownership of the stuff you've already bought, but whether you can will that in the next generation is a very good question. Yeah. And the other question is, would the next generation have even a desire or a need for it? Because at least when you passed on an album or like a record or a tape or a CD, yeah. it was visceral, it was tangible. Whereas if you pass on music that you bought in 1997, <laughs> What's the point if it's in a format that actually no one can access? Um, and so that really is the, the more interesting question. <laughs> All that money is wasted. Correct. <laughs> I feel that now when I'm, I'm on Apple Music. I'm one of the 38 million subscribers of Apple Music. And when I listen to a song that I know that I bought a while ago, I kind of feel that little tiny sting. <laughs> feel like I'm paying for it twice. Anyway, I'll get over that. All right. What's number two on the list? iTunes, gone. few years. Yeah, number two is interesting. This is, a, this is a longer term burn, but it's going to be a really interesting one to watch unfold. And that is the demise of car parks. I'm and, so you know, excited we're talking, about this one. Ah, oh, it's so exciting. The idea of parking stations, which if you think about it, I mean, look around most capital cities, how much of the valuable real estate in our urban centers these things take up. Yeah. And they will disappear probably, certainly in our lifetime, but I would say in the next decade and a half or so. And what's going to, of course, impact the car parking revenue stream is autonomous and once you've got an autonomous vehicle, which is probably, I mean, that the smartest minds in the game right now are saying they'll be mainstream or at least breaking into mainstream by 2027. So once you've got an autonomous vehicle, you don't need to pay to park your car anywhere because so let's say your car drops you at work and then it'll go home and wait for you until you finished work or finished dinner on a Friday night and come back and pick you up. Or sit at home like a smart horse. It, like a smart horse. Well, it's like the Batmobile, really. So, you know, like it'll just hail it when you're ready. It comes on back. But more, more likely, that it won't drop you off and go home. It'll actually drop you off, for instance, then go into a pool of other driver, driverless vehicles, Uber-style, earning you cash. Yeah. So we probably won't own a car. We'll probably Correct. be using a car on that on that hour-by-hour hour basis, and that'll be the best, most efficient, most cost-efficient way of owning a car, and, and we, don't, we won't need to park it anywhere. It's so amazing. So, Michael, my oldest boy is about to turn five. I have a two-year-old and a five-month-old. No, she's nearly six months they will probably never drive, will they? Yeah, that's it. Oh, exactly. So we've got a two-year-old as well, and I look at him, and his favorite thing right now, I don't know where your two-year-old's up to, but favorite thing, get back into the driveway, pull in the car, turn the car off, and it's to jump in the front and pretend to drive and model and mimic all the things that they've just seen do. Yep. And I look at that, and I think, what a shame he may never actually get to do it, yes. which is sort of in itself sort of a bit sad, really, because it is that rite of passage. I mean, anyone who's listening that remembers that moment they got – their driver's license and you could drive on your own with no one supervising it's just the freedom is awesome and that will be a rite of passage that will disappear do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work contact team guru today so we can start the conversation i remember that first moment that i drove by myself i still remember it really well it is a rite of passage it was an incredible feeling of freedom. But I guess we'll just have to move on from that. What's it like? We will. 
What's something that our grandparents or maybe even our parents did that we just never, ever even did because of that kind of reason? Is there anything like that? Oh, there'd be a number of things like it. It's sort of hard to get your head around because they're things that seem so antiquated now. But even, I mean, the notion of going to a store to get your groceries and you, know, you, you see those the old footage in movies of going up to the counter and choosing out your things. They put them on a scale and then give them to you or they come and deliver the ice or they come and deliver the meat and it all, it all come to home. And all those things that you hear your grandparents talk about that you think, wow, that's, I mean, so, I, I, so I'm 36. I've got these vague memories as kids where the milk delivered. So I remember the milk delivery. Yeah. But even that, I mean, that's because I grew up in a regional area. In the cities, that wasn't as common you know, as recently. And so things like that that have disappeared. I mean, there are some states in the U.S. pull into the, the service station or the gas station and you can't pump your own gas. You've got to have someone come out old school and pumping yeah. your gas for you. And nice. you have those moments where it's like, well, this is what it was like back yeah. in the day. But, yeah. you know, there'll be lots of those things that we'll tell our kids about. And it's, it's going to be a number of industries. I mean, paying to park our cars will be just one of them. I mean, the idea of having truck drivers and bus drivers and you know, train drivers, all these industries, all these professions that would disappear. And you know, even just think about right now in Sydney, they're building the Metro, which is a brand new train line. They're going to build it from the northwestern suburbs through the city and out to the southwest. And that is going to be autonomous from the outset. No train drivers at all. And that's, I mean, just indicative of, of where we're going. And that idea of employment is something that I'm going to ask you towards the end. But but just sticking on the car thing, for you know, getting ready for physical car parks is sort of exciting because it frees up a bunch of space in a city that we might not use anymore because <laughs> yes. people might not go into into work anymore. And that's a, a whole other question. But it's not just about freeing up the car parks. It's about the amazingness of having this vehicle that will drive you. We can all be passengers in an Uber all the time. And I just love that idea. And I've heard these fantastic anecdotes about when humans are no longer allowed to drive because we're too risky compared to the technology. Mm. Cars will indeed be able to travel so fast that we'll have to black out the windows because you and I wouldn't be able to stand it. Our stomachs wouldn't stand it. What an amazing future. That is That is space age when we're just zipping along from Brisbane to the Gold Coast in five minutes because we're going so quickly and it's so safe. The humans aren't allowed to be part of it anymore. I imagine that driving will become some kind of virtual reality thing that you do as a hobby if you're indeed misdriving that much? I think it'll be a hobby, but I, I wonder whether, I mean, VR will be part of it, I suspect, but more than that, it'll be, I mean, think of what horse riding is for a lot of people today. Yeah. I mean, that, that is essentially what driving will be yes. in 30 years. So, you know, owning a car will be like owning a horse. You'll, you'll go out to a property and you'll have your horse adjusted. You'll have your car adjusted instead of a horse and you'll go out and you'll Jump in your vehicle and you'll drive around for a few hours and get get your fix and then hop back in a driverless vehicle and it'll drive you home. And I mean, even I was talking to Ian Gillespie who heads up RACQ and he was talking about you know obviously running one of the country's largest automotive membership um, organisations. I mean, he and some of his peers from around the world have I mean essentially been gearing up for this world. You know, how do we set policy to make sure that drivers are protected and society functions and all that sort of stuff? And you know, I was chatting with him about how does this stuff roll out? And he said the most recent discussions at a high level amongst the executives of these organizations worldwide and with the car makers themselves is they'll probably put perimeters around major built-up city areas. So you might have a perimeter sort of two, three, four kilometers out from the, the center of the city. And inside that perimeter, only driverless cars will operate. And outside of that, we'll see things operate much like they do now. And then over time, that perimeter will move out further and further and further. 
So it's going to be very interesting to watch this unfold once you get to that point. I hate to be a negative Nelly, but I see, because I'm so excited about all of this stuff, but I see along the way vested interests doing everything they can to slow that kind of progress down. Vested interests in the old way, old automobile manufacturers or anyone who is Mm. in an industry that relies on people driving their car will do everything they can to slow it down, a la the coal industry. Yeah. And it won't just be industry. Governments need to be very mindful that this will be a huge change for them. I mean, the whole notion of driving and driving the way we now have, I mean, the the prices we pay for and certainly luxury cars, luxury car tax is a lucrative money earner for the government. And so the whole notion of car ownership disappears. There'll be a lot of governments who are nervous about this. And and even as we move to an electric vehicle age, and we can talk about that shortly in terms of one of the other things that will disappear is, is petrol stations. But now as we move to an electric vehicle age and, and the government loses all that excise tax on petrol, how do they then raise the revenue? So there's going to be a number of points where certainly there'll be business interests, invested interests that will put a handbrake on this. But governments could well do so also if they're not careful. And they'll do so in cases for the best of reasons, or they'll tell us it's the best of reasons, the public good or the public safety, but actually look economic drivers behind it. And this is where the three-year or four-year government terms really comes to bite us because there's no incentive for a government to think beyond the balancing of the books in their own cycle. And if a government is just thinking about that and the next election, then it can be really tempting to make short-term decisions that put a clamp on this kind of progress that we're talking about because of those really basic things that you say, some of the, the fuel excise and the, the tax on luxury cars that they'll miss out on if they let this thing go ahead. All right. I, I, I read a book, Kurzlow. What's the, the future is Kurzlow. He wrote about the fact that he, in, in, the, in the preview to the book, the forward to the book, he has to say, look, there are so many ways to look at technology and its potential. You just have to assume it will be good. Because if you think about all of the other things like we've just talked about for a minute, you could get caught up. We might not have any of these technologies in 10 or 15 years' time, depending on the way our governments respond to the potential, I guess. That's right. And governments have a really important role. Ray Kurzlow, that's the name of the guy. Yeah, Ray Kurzlow. I mean, Ray Kurzlow is really interesting because he's one of the key thinkers when it comes to the impact of AI, which Mm. I'm sure we'll get to in this conversation at one point because- I mean, he, he's probably one of the more bullish voices in the mix around, you know, the importance of, of AI and how it's all going to roll out and the timeline for it to roll out. Um, but if you take a step back from some of the bigger picture AI stuff, the role of government's really important. So look at, for instance, electric vehicles. And that that's, I mean, the third thing we'll see disappear is, is service stations, you know, in, in our in our lifetime. Because once you've got an electric vehicle, you don't need to flood up anywhere. And so that whole industry becomes something of a moot point. But for, for electric vehicles to get traction, it requires significant government investment. It requires government, while it's in its infancy as an industry, to prop it up. And so what we're seeing right now, and we saw this in Hong Kong just in the last six months, where as soon as the Hong Kong government pulled out the essentially the rebate for owning electric vehicles, Tesla sales went through the floor. Right. And so we've got to have an ability for governments that they are an enabler of innovation if they do their job well. Yeah. And as you say, there, there's certainly that the temptation towards short-termism in governments. But also, if you look at some of the infrastructure decisions they've got to make, it's messy. It's complicated. I, I have a lot of sympathy for policymakers. Like I was working with last week with Sydney Trains. So you think about it as a bureaucracy. I mean, they're running a massive network of trains, and they're building infrastructure that is 5, 10, 15, 25 years out. Public-private partnerships. And you know, I was working with their leadership team talking about the influence of autonomous vehicles. And they said, okay, so if this is happening, what does this mean for heavy rail? 
And, you know, like t- to an extent, it's like, well, it's really anyone's guess. Because if we're going to have, as you say, driverless cars on freeways platooning, which is the term for these vehicles moving close together at, at, at great speeds, would you really need to catch a train anymore? So, therefore, what does the government do? Do you say, okay, you know what, let's just not build any heavy rail for the next 20 years because it's all going to be driverless in our lifetime. And that, that's not tenable either. So, I do feel for them they're in a, a difficult spot where they've got to build for the world we know with one eye on the world that's coming next, but they can't just defer all judgment and strategy to say it's all going to change, so we'll just wait till it changes before we build stuff. So it is a really difficult situation for policymakers, and we probably all should, as in like citizens, cut them a bit of slack because it is, it's a difficult time right now to be setting long-term policy. You're right. I should cut them a bit of slack too, Michael. I'm, I'm very guilty <laughs> of, this, of not cutting slack. <laughs> all right. So we know that iTunes is going, car parks are going, service stations are going for the obvious reason. What else is going? If credit cards in their current form will probably disappear in the next five years, five to 10 years, I'd say, but probably closer to five. And I think the big thing that we're going to see take the place of physical credit cards will be biometrics. And I mean, our phones already, of course, if you've got Apple Pay, you can use your, your phone to pay for things. And that's in itself pretty cool technology. I had a customer recently at a conference who was buying one of my books who bought who bought a book with a ring, and it's a Bank West piece of technology. I hadn't seen it before, yeah, and heard of it. I felt embarrassed. I'm the I'm the futurist, and she comes up and shows me this new piece of tech. Um, but she sort of, I went, you know, she picked up the book, and I soon went to reach for a card, and then she sort of put a hand towards me, palm face up, and I'm like, what is she doing? And and she paid with a little chip in her in Call the you ring on a futurist man. I know, I know, <laughs> but I, that's that's brand new to me. I didn't see in that one. But where will the credit cards go? The big disruption for them will be biometrics. And so we saw last year, late last year, Alipay over in China test um, some pretty cool technology, which is um, facial recognition technology at a KFC store. So you went up to the cash register, ordered your, it recognized your face, charged your stored account card, and you walked away with your meal, not having reached for your wallet or your credit card at all. And so the idea of Physical credit cards will likely disappear in the very short, and certainly the medium term, if not the short term. Yeah, yeah, and that's one. You know, that's cool. It's not a huge game changer, I guess. It's it's pretty cool. It sounds like a lot of effort to go into technology to avoid me having to whip out my card and do PayWave. I mean, PayWave was a massive breakthrough. Getting it onto my phone, I'm really looking forward to that. My particular bank doesn't do that yet. I wish they would. That way, I could almost stop carrying my wallet altogether. That would be nice. Face facial recognition, I, I get. Yeah, that's cool. I, it's not it's not an exciting game changer for me like the cars are, but I can see that where that would go, and the financial industry would of course be pursuing that type of thing. All right, well, what's next? We've got two more of these things that are going to disappear from our world. Two more, yeah. So call centers, um, and certainly the idea of custom interactions happening with human call center operators and. The thing that's changing already and it's going to continue to ramp up is the impact of chatbots. Um, and you know, the big shift in the last few weeks, of course, is when – How good are they now? Oh, just they're, they're so much more accurate than they ever have been. This, it's still a bit clunky, but they are getting better constantly because, of course, they're underpinned more and more by AI. I mean, the technology behind them is getting smarter all the time and exponentially so. What we saw interesting was with Google's product launch three weeks ago, for the first time we saw chatbots – not just being the company dealing with customers, but the customer themselves. I don't know if you saw the, um, the launch of Google Duplex. And, I didn't. I mean, just amazing when you think of your Google Home Assistant ringing up your local hairdresser or restaurant to make an appointment for you and speaking to that restaurant as a human, even though it's a piece of technology. So chatbots are really interesting because they will revolutionize the customer interaction, the customer interface for companies. 
Gartner have got some pretty bullish predictions on how quickly this will catch on. Their estimation thinks 85% of customer interactions could well be using chatbots by 2020. That's really soon. So I think that's probably a bit bullish. I think it's unlikely to be that fast, but certainly chatbots are going to change the game. Because that's not far away. Yeah. So call center operators. Not at all. <laughs> but, you know, how, this is one of these these ones that you can imagine certain industries are pursuing relentlessly because imagine the cost savings mm. of not having to employ call center operators and imagine the efficiencies for the customer as well. If we're not having human error or emotion, you've got a chatbot who really does know everything, who really isn't going to make a mistake when it comes to your account or giving your advest, advice for the, the best the best plan that you should have with your mobile phone or whatever it might be, that is a game changer. And I can imagine from the customer's point of view, we will find that annoying if they bring it out too early and it's clunky and it and it brings more mistakes than it fixes. But eventually, it's just something that we'll grow accustomed to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're right, it is at the moment. It's still a little bit clunky, but it's it's the point is, of course, and this is the Turing test, when you get to a point where you're interacting with a piece of technology or a computer and you don't know it's a computer, that's the breakthrough moment. And those are beginning to occur with greater frequency. This, is that the singularity? No, singularity is another one of these jargonistic terms. That's, yeah. I mean, that's when computers become as, as smart as us. But at the moment when we interact with them, that's, that's a key threshold. But at the moment, they're still not as smart as us and they're not able to operate in different frames in the way we can swap between frames of context. They're not there yet, but that's, I mean, that's the sort of stuff that Ray Kurzweil is saying is, is not that far away. Hey, you know, um, I'm jumping ahead because soon I'm going to ask you what's going to be in our life. But as, as it's come up, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it now. I really want a personal assistant. I don't have a personal assistant. I want one of these these chatbots who is as good as a real personal assistant because I can't really justify one, but I would love to be driving along and just call them and say, hey, I've just had a thought. Can you book this thing for me or plan this thing or, yep. or have a look here or whatever it might be? I, I have that thought quite a lot, but I, of course, I'm not going to get an assistant for that, but one of these chatbots would have been amazing. How long is it going to be until everyday man can have and woman can have essentially an assistant that we can call anytime and ask any real question and get them to do complicated tasks? Well, if you look at what Google launched three weeks ago, it's the technologies here for it to become mainstream will probably take at least six to twelve, maybe eighteen months. But oh, that's, that's the technology soon. is pretty close, really. Um, but uh, see, the trade-off here, and this is the big discussion point around ethics. And then some of the moral implications of this is how much of your privacy are you willing to trade away heaps. for the convenience? And this is a point where you say heaps, and I, I probably say a lot. I wouldn't say heaps, I say a lot. But there, there are a lot of people who I think are either uninformed or are very wary. So that'll be one of the handbrakes on how quickly this stuff gets rolled out is you know, just that sense of people saying, how much do we really trust those who are providing the technology to us? Bear in mind that particularly for technology you're not paying for, I mean, I heard this great quote recently, if if you're not paying for the, the product, you are the product. And it's so true. And you know, our data and the insights being gleaned from us at all times, and particularly some of this virtual assistant technology, that's where the value exchange is occurring, is how much insight into your daily behavior and choices and preferences it's gaining. So yeah, that, that's going to be one of the big trade-offs I think people are starting to come to terms with. You know, I'm so naive, Michael, because when I was thinking about that, I wasn't thinking about this free Facebook-like service that would actually be using me as the product. 
I was thinking about this thing that I would pay a small fee for every month and have this really trustworthy kind of artificial assistant, as I say, but there's my naivety kicking in. I do say heaps, and that's a thoughtful position. I'm, I am willing to give up some of my data for the convenience. I, I can ignore the ads. I mean, the, the ads are quite amazing. If I, if I mention to a mate on a, in a Gmail email something about a trip or something I'd like to do, or hey, we're going skiing, you know, and this is a real one. I'm going skiing this Christmas with a mate in Canada. And all of a sudden, all of these ads for ski gear and, and stuff in Canada starting popping <laughs> up. So they're clearly trawling my emails and picking up information. As creepy as that can be, if you dwell on it, I'm kind of okay with that because I can ignore that or sometimes the ads are even a bit convenient. So I'm, I'm always <laughs> weighing right. up the convenience of all of this amazing stuff that's in our life with mm. just how penetrating the the data is that they get from me. If they know what I'm into and what I like and what I'm planning to do, I don't really care. Yeah, that's it. I feel pretty much the same. I, I just I'm mindful of the fact that the data they're collecting right now I'm comfortable with and them getting information on, but it's the fact that it's stored sort of forever. And it's it's, it's the cumulative impact of that data set across a population, the power that affords an organization or a company, it, it eclipses anything that a national sovereign government has ever had. In terms of power over time, I think that, that's the only bit that I just think, you know what, I'm just I'm mindful of that. But at the same time, I'm also mindful that how do you operate in this age without embracing that? I mean, my father-in-law is a good example, isn't on Facebook, has gone to great lengths to not use Google anything, Gmail or Google Calendar. And his life is often incredibly inconvenient because he's finding workarounds constantly for this. And I think, well, I get it. It's a very principled approach, but you know, at what point and at what cost? You know, like at what point do you just go, you know what, I'm willing to trade off something in order to be able to interact with my friends and family in a seamless way. Yeah, me, me too. It's uh, it's an interesting thing. And, and of course, it could have a dystopia future or it could be completely utopian. And I guess it's it's the way that we as citizens and voters help to shape that conversation and hold large organizations to account and insist that our governments are are pursuing the future in a healthy and thoughtful way with a, a little bit of vision. All right, so we're on our list. Car park, credit card, iTunes, call centers are gone, service stations are gone, and the very last one that's gone has already gone. And I've been overseas a number of times recently without one of these things and and managed just fine. Yeah, and it's foreign language translators or foreign language books. And we've seen technology in a way step into this place where you can use an app now to translate most things relatively easily, but that it's still clunky technology. The big game changer we're seeing come, and it's already been launched, but it's not mainstream yet, is some of the in-ear real-time translators. So um, there's one called Translate 121. So if, if listeners want to Google it, it's O-N-E, number two, O-N-E, one to one. It's amazing stuff. So this is actually powered by um, IBM's Watson AI tech. And basically, it's an in-ear um, in piece that if I'm speaking to you in English, you're, you're listening in German, you'll hear in German. And when you respond in German, I will hear in English. And I think that is just awesome. And That is awesome. Ah, huge. And you think for us as Aussies where we don't learn languages well, you know, we sort of do a bit of language. We dabble in them at school because you have to. But realistically, unlike people in you know, a lot of Europe where you just naturally learn two or three languages up to the age of 16 because it's just what you do. Yeah. For us to be able to travel and be able to engage in other countries in real time in their dialect is a game changer. I've got one on my phone. I'm just looking at it now. It got me around France last year. And I loved it. It's called Speak and Translate. And I thought it was so amazing because I could just choose. It's as simple as you've got two flags 
you got a, an Australian flag and a French flag, and I can put it in one way or in the other way, and it spits it out the other way. And I thought that was amazing. But in hindsight, in in five years' time or ten years' time, when we've got that kind of real time translation that you're talking about, of course, that will seem very clunky, like riding a horse, but it was pretty cool. It was much better than any kind of book I would have to fumble through. But what you're talking about there is just another another level. That is all interesting stuff, Michael. So they're the things that will disappear from our life and for the reasons that you've just talked about. What then is going to be in our life in the next five or 10 years that will be a massive part of what we do and how we live that we're not there yet. Maybe it's because there's technology that exists and we haven't put it together yet, or it's just going to be a brand new thing that comes from nowhere. And all of a sudden, like a smartphone, everyone's got one. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in some ways it builds off the things we've talked about. It's the flip side of these. So the things that we've seen disappear, the very technologies that have caused them to disappear will be the things that dominate, I guess, our experience. So if you look at what caused, for instance, service stations to disappear, electric vehicles will become mainstream in a really big way. And some of this will be dependent on government policies, for instance, but I mean, it is going to be a game changer for a whole lot of us. As soon as the economy is working in our favor, where buying an electric vehicle is sensible and there's the infrastructure to support it, that is going to be one that will be a massive one in the next three to five years. And I look at the fact that we've got a car that's two or three years into a five-year lease, and we're now thinking, is that it? Is that the last internal combustion car we own? And if it's not this one, it'll be the next one. So be a significant one in the next few years to watch. Uh, we'll see technology, I think, influence industries in ways we haven't seen so far. And one of the case studies in the book that I look at is um, the industry, oh, an industry I've worked a lot with in the last 12 months, and that's the optometry industry. And so, I mean, you're seeing some really interesting stuff happening in that space, what they call auto-refracting technology, which is technology that does, you do essentially your own eye examinations. So you use the camera in your phone, your tablet device, your laptop to do a, a full eye examination. It then submits that eye examination. And prescribe yourself some glasses. It, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, so there's one in the US right now that's sending shockwaves throughout the optometry world there called Alternative. And um, I won't say who it is, but there are a couple of the big chains in Australia looking to use very similar technology to roll out in the next 12 to 18 months. So that's the idea that if we don't disrupt ourselves, someone will disrupt us. So they want to be part of that. Correct. Exactly. So it's going to be really interesting to watch that play out because that is an industry that is, in many ways, there are high barriers to entry. There's that sense of, you know, well, it's it's the dark arts. We don't really know how what they do when you go into that optometry clinic, what they, exactly all the things they do. They flick a whole lot of stuff around, ask you to focus on a picture at the distance. When does it get blurry? Like, as patients and as consumers, we feel very at arm's length. Like, it's, it's something we don't really understand. The moment that becomes technology-enabled, it sort of levels the playing field, but it empowers us in a really significant way. And probably that's the thing we'll see the most in the coming few years is that as consumers – we are going to have more power than ever before. I mean, you look at so many industries, like for instance, um, like the real estate industry. I mean, that's already changed massively in the last few years with the onset of online job ads, you know, online real estate ads, sorry, rather than going to a local agent to look at properties in the window. But that's going to change in the coming few years in some other ways too. So you look, you're seeing apps now where you can drive down the street, hold your phone up to a property. It identifies the property visually and based on your GPS location and it loads the property sales history instantly or in, in augmented reality on your phone. Sales history, open for inspections. You know, it's got everything you could possibly want to ask on your phone as you drive down the street. And so technology like that and even Google Lens is an interesting tech which will 
change the whole re- the restaurant review business. So as you walk down the street, if you look at a restaurant and think, I wonder what that place is like, you don't have to jump on and look at a, an online review. You can actually hold your phone up over the restaurant or the hotel and it'll overlay, it'll identify the hotel or the restaurant and overlay on your phone using this Google Lens technology, reviews, pricing, the menu, the open times, the closed times. So you know, as consumers, we can have more options and more choice and more information than ever, which puts us in the driver's seat in some really key ways. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. You said something really interesting before that I don't want to gloss over because it's it, it affects all of us in an incredible way mm. that you might be driving your final ever combustion engine car. The, this one that you, you, you've you leased, you're two years into a five-year lease, and if it's not this one, it will definitely be the next one. That is enormous. That is That kind of change huge. is huge in itself, but what it represents is even bigger. But I still have my trouble getting my head around it. I understand the technology exists. I, I have that vision of the future, this driverless car future. It makes perfect sense. I've even bought into the fact that my kids will probably never drive. But you know what I can't imagine? I can't imagine the current Queensland government putting in the infrastructure to do it. And I don't know about you and your state. I just can't see them doing it. I mean, they they seem – and I'm, I'm, this is not a, a, a commentary on the, on the specific government. It's just – Governments of all types across Australia, they just seem bogged down in the today and getting by on on whatever issues are being tossed around in a very partisan way today. I can't imagine any leader in in the landscape in Australia who is going to step up and be as revolutionary as to suggest we start laying the infrastructure that it's going to allow driverless cars. I just can't see it happening. Well, I think in what you see is big businesses who are visionary coming in and getting alongside governments and giving governments the safety net they need. Because, I mean, the biggest thing they're scared of is taking a risk and a blowing up in their face next election day. And so you see what happened, for instance, with um, Elon Musk coming alongside the government in South Australia to build the biggest battery. Mm. That's the example of what we're going to see. And already, if we're really honest, we're seeing a lot of big businesses far more powerful than sovereign governments. I mean, the fact that our government and others are having so much trouble getting these companies to pay tax. Yeah is indicative of just how the power balance has shifted. I thought it was very interesting watching Zuckerberg come before the Senate, you know, discussing some of the privacy breaches. And I thought it was interesting the posture that he was like the the kid in the principal's office in trouble because I thought, wow, I mean, it really was – I thought that was surprising and I thought it was a shame because actually if you looked at the questions being asked by those who are in power, they were so ill-informed. I mean, if I were him in that situation, even though obviously you want to be – I guess you want to defer to power and the rest of it. You want to honour the people you're speaking to and the roles they're in. They were so ill prepared, and I would have thought it would have been actually more powerful for him to step to essentially hold his ground and say, "Look, guys, if you want to really ask questions and grooming here, you need to do your homework before you ask such patiently dumb questions." And this is the thing where we're seeing government. Yeah, I think it was less about him deferring to power, and it was a bit of a me a PR campaign because Facebook was so ugly with its customers right then. I don't think he was playing to the individuals in the room who were completely ill-informed and and way behind the times. I think he was putting on a show of remorse for his clients. I wonder that. So the reason I would challenge that is because of his body language. There are a lot of body. I mean, in terms of body language, tells 
everything about his, so you can have intellectually going into that conversation, him sitting down, having spoken to his PR team, and even thinking, how do I position this so it works well in terms of their users? But you can't inform your eyes. You can't inform your body language and the, the level of perspiration. I mean, he, what, if you tell my colleagues who this is their bag, I mean, they're all about body language and right. just, it's amazing to talk to them and what they see in situations the rest of us miss. I mean, he, his whole physique, his posture was all of a very cagey, I'm afraid, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to put a foot wrong. I mean, it, it points his eyes, he, everything about his persona looked like it was under the pump. It was stress, it was anxiety. The way he used his, his vocal quality meant that he was nervous, he was wow. probably nervous. Well, that's, that's interesting in itself. The greatest disruptor in history, the, you know, one of the richest people in the world at, at the youngest age was still intimidated by the old building and the the, the <laughs> yes. old foundations of democracy. That that's an interesting conversation in itself. Hey, Michael, we're going to have to wrap it up very soon. But before we go, I would love to hear your thoughts on the the future of employment. To get it off with a start, tell me if I'm right or wrong. A lot of people will say, "Hey, we've been disrupted before." There's this the first and the second industrial revolutions, and and when we used to do stuff by labor, and you know, a machine replaced us, we came up with a new industry. That's where the thought lead. That's where the the thought leaders or the thought industry came about. We became thinkers. We lifted ourselves to a higher level of employment. I'm guessing that this is different. Because it's not going to be a case of us lifting ourselves up to a level beyond what those basic machines could do. We are going to be competing with machines that are far smarter than us, far more capable than us in so many ways. So what is the future of employment? Because everything that we've talked about tonight that is exciting also has that underbelly that it means jobs will be lost. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, even the fact that you use the word employment is an interest. That, that's very telling. Mm. And I think that's probably one of the key things we're going to see disappear, not entirely. It's not going to be eradicated, but the notion of having an employer, one single employee who's responsible for your salary, your pay packet, right. that will become far, far less common in the next few decades. And where we're going to be at is people who are self-employed contractors, freelancers, who are essentially a brand and a business with a set of unique commodities or skills that they rent out to the highest bidder at any given moment and it'll be different people based on the moment and what skills are required. And that in many ways is very exciting because it means you can have a whole whole population that if they're trained with the confidence and the skills to be able to do that, will have a whole lot more flexibility. I mean, it's going to mean some of our existing structures will need to change. I mean, we've taught a population now to rely on your employer to pay your superannuation. They'll look after your employment. They'll look after making sure that you are set for life. And that's, that's going to change, and it's already changing. I and mean, the number of self-employed people who have almost no superannuation or far less than they need is indicative of where we'll be in 20 or 30 years' time. So we're going to have to do some serious retraining. And, in fact, the book I'm writing as we speak, I've got another book like Hit Stores next year, this question of how do we gear up the students in schools right now for this world because it's so important we do. And so part of it's going to be about the fact that the whole notion of how we derive our income is going to change massively. That's going to move, be a move away from employment as we now know it. But if you look at you know, the changes that are coming, the fact that computers will do things that in the past we thought, no, that, that's, that's our domain. You know, as humans, we do that stuff. I mean, it's one thing to employ a robot to work on a production line building a car. It's a very different, very different notion to have a, a, um, a piece of technology designing chairs as a, as, a, as a furniture designer in a warehouse. I mean, so, or, or, or performing surgery. I mean, there's so many of these areas where We'll see technology doing very fine, 
highly cognitive work that in the past we thought was sort of human yeah. human driven only. So the question then is, if you've got kids and you're talking about our kids, I mean, how do you gear up your kids for the world that they're going to be working in the years to come? Firstly, it's going to be they'll be working for themselves, more of them. Also, they're going to need skills that are not easily replicatable on using technology. So these are going to be things like intuition. Soft skills. Judgment. Yeah. Empathy. Soft skills, the, the negotiation, yeah. dealing with humans. Yeah. I mean, industries like the, the aged care profession, education, these are things that technology will not do well because a computer or a robot doesn't have a soul. Yeah. And as human beings, we've got that ability to empathize and intuit and read into situations, those soft skills, that's going to be what really, really sets us apart. And in some ways, that's very liberating because it's the fun stuff in work. The mundane stuff will disappear, but it is going to be, it's going to be a messy transition. I think you're naive to think, you know, as humans, we'll just adapt because that's what we do. What we do, but we don't adapt fast enough. And I think we're going to see a lot of people caught in this transition. But why Why isn't the answer that you gave me, hey, David, we're not going to have to work because there's going to be all these wonderful machines and AI and robots that can do the work for us. And even better than that, not only will they be doing the work, they'll be creating value within an economy that we can all just live off. And we can all live a lovely, comfortable life by the value created by these machines that we don't even need to service because there's a service robot for that. When's that future? When is this future of completely no work? Well, that future could be a whole lot closer than we want. My question is, is that a good future? And my answer would be- Yes, because there's still golf courses. Yeah, still golf courses. But think about, okay, what's the purpose of work? And this is the really important question we need to ask is that- Work beyond just providing an income for us provides a really important way of interacting with society, deriving a sense of value, contribution. But the biggest oh, we can do that without work. But could you? Yes. So, oh, there's this great quote, really interesting quote from Voltaire. So Voltaire said this, work saves a man from three great evils, boredom, vice, and need. So the need you can deal with, yeah. but it's boredom and vice, that sense of not being, not, not contributing, not being useful. Now, you can get some of that probably through volunteering. Yeah. But the idea of actually producing something is still, I think it's still going to be a necessary part of, of us as human beings. It's part of our DNA, our makeup. And you look at a, a country like, I mean, look, look what's happening, for instance, in many of the um, Arab Emirates. Got the, the population that are born there, because they're born there, essentially have fixed income because, you know, they can import the labor to do all the work, the grunt work day to day. And you're seeing a population now, you're going to see a second generation who've never actually had to work. Mm. And you speak to the people on the ground, it's not breeding great humans. There's a lot of entitlement. There's a lot of obesity. There's a lot of people who okay. who are growing up not having to struggle. Yeah, Struggle is important. Yeah, okay. Struggle is a part of life. And I think if we remove that struggle by having others do all the hard, all the mundane, all the boring stuff, that actually doesn't work well for us as humans. We don't work well when we're not having to stretch and struggle. I think the importance of work in that area is is critical. And even though we could get machines to do it, I think there's still something about us as human beings that we need to create, produce, and contribute. So that that's an incredibly interesting case study about the United Arab Emirates, where we've got the second generation of people not having to work and what it's done to them. That I take that. That's that's great insight. Uh, but I do think I think I could do it. I think I could derive meaning from life without having to work. And I think it's that having to. You know, I'm sure some things that I would choose to do, you could look as as work. But because it's the choice and the pursuit of of enjoyment and fulfillment, I think I could do that. But there's, you know, you even hear the same argument about people when they retire. Oh, he's lost his purpose, or 
She's lost her purpose. She's got nothing. <laughs> yes. I, I always scratch my head and think, hey, that, that, could, that would never happen to me. Mind you, it, you know, who knows? I, I could be wrong. But it's such an interesting <laughs> concept that yeah. the, the idea of a life, a future with no work for us and how we would spend our time. I guess the answer to the question, how would we spend our time, is as varied as humans themselves. Some people would find a very purposeful way to live life and get a lot of fulfillment, where a lot of people would sit on the couch and become enormously obese and watch Netflix. Yep. Or it'd be like what we saw in the aristocracy of centuries past, often very incestuous, mm. a vain, um, thriving on gossip because the world becomes a very small place, you know, when you've got nothing that's demanding your attention and it becomes all about you. Um, very, very easily as human beings, we become often very consumed with ourselves and our world in some unhelpful ways. So, I mean, this is not to say that work solves all those problems, but there's something about having that sense of purpose, which I think is important. And you think of how far we come from our grandparents today. And I think in many ways, the pendulum perhaps has swung too far. I mean, I look at the number of young people that I speak with who talk about and I mean, their first question when it comes to choosing a career or what they're going to spend their time doing is, what am I passionate about? You know, what's going to be my bliss type thing? I think, well, isn't that interesting? I mean, my grandparents... The question of is my work fulfilling, am I passionate about it, wasn't even part of the discussion. Is this going to provide for my family? Yeah, yeah. Is this a sensible thing to do economically? And whether I enjoy it or not, it's just it's an irrelevant question. And I wonder now, and I, I think there's a correlation, and we're getting all philosophical here, but I think is there a correlation between a generation who've grown up feeling they've got to pursue something that they are constantly passionate about and the degree of depression and anxiety goes with that because sometimes life isn't fun and exciting and passion-filled. It's just getting on with the day to day. And there's actually something rich and beautiful in the mundane. And yet in our desire to constantly be full of passion, are we are we setting a bar that is too high for people? And then social media amplifies that because everyone else's life they portray seems to be so glamorous and amazing, exciting and passion filled when actually probably behind the scenes, it's not that much. So I think there's some interesting stuff to look at and, and plumb the depths of there in terms of the human psyche and what it is that gives us that genuine sense of accomplishment or fulfillment. Oh, the the future of life without work, is it a good thing or is it a terrible thing? And that's, that's a conversation all in itself. Michael McQueen, we've run out of time, but I have absolutely enjoyed our chat tonight. It's been fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, likewise. My pleasure. Thank you. And that was Michael McQueen and his take on so many of the things we have to look forward to. So what do you think? Is he on the money? Do you think he's missed the mark on any of his predictions? Is there more to the story? Are you up for the world that Michael describes, or would you prefer things stay much the same as they are? Let me know. Join us on Facebook or Twitter. Jump into the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where this is all heading. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Michael on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of the Team Guru podcast on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me on the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.